Stop it! Don't open that door! Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 15 of the Masters of Unlocking podcast. If you're new to the show, welcome and thanks for checking us out. And if you're an old friend, welcome back. We like to think of ourselves as a different kind of video game podcast. We tend to focus on topics dealing with more business, economic, and psychological aspects of video game and gaming culture. In this episode, we're going to discuss Google's rumored game streaming service. Hawaii's proposed loot crate legislature. Find out if Nintendo sold us stolen goods. Look at an innovative way to unearth game deals and more. And in our main event tonight, we dive into a new report that looks at the status of video gaming in 2018. My name is Scott. You can find me all over the world wide web as VG Collectaholic. As you might guess from a moniker like that, I'm a game collector and former game store owner. And with me per use is Mr. Caleb J. Ross, author, consultant, YouTuber, and all-around erudite. You can find him in cyberspace at Caleb J. Ross, ironically enough. Caleb, happy mm-hmm. belated Valentine's Day to you, sir. How have you been? Good, good. I'm, I'm sort of questioning the decision to go with Caleb J. Ross as my moniker. I should have gone with uh, Caleb J. Ross electaholic uh maybe exactly vg caleb j ross yeah um but i didn't do that because that would be dumb so (laughs) i'm i'm doing well this post valentine's day Uh, i hope you are as well i am i had a long long week at work but it's the it's friday night now as we record this and i'm excited to talk about video games and then go play some video games ah likewise Mm, Mm -mm -mm. so what have you been playing so far well or what are you going to get back to i suppose i should say so I finished up uh, Lord of the Rings, Middle Earth, Shadow of War, and then I jumped into Odin Sphere Left Rassir for PlayStation 4. Odin Sphere is the February Cartridge Club game of the month. So it's a action RPG slash beat-em-up that originally came out on PlayStation 2, I believe. And then this uh, Left Rassir remake came out on both PS3, PS4, and Vita. I'm playing it on the PlayStation 4. It's gorgeous. The artwork on it, it's all it's developed by Vanillaware. And so if, it's, if you've played any of the Vanillaware games, they're very colorful, very uh, unique kind of art style, all hand-drawn sort of look to it. Uh, having a really good time with it. There's, I believe, like five or six different playthroughs and that, that culminate in the entire story. Uh, each, you, each playthrough is with a different character and you fight some of the same bosses. It's all, but it's all a unique storyline. So it doesn't feel like you're playing through the same thing. Like I know some folks had uh, issues with um, near automata because of that. It felt like playthroughs B and C were sort of just the more of the same, the same game, same storyline. Uh, that's not the case with the playthroughs in Odin sphere. So um, I think I, I've completed four of the playthroughs now and I'm on to my fifth. I'm not going to get too much into it because I'm going to be partaking in the uh, Cartridge Club podcast for the game Mm. of the month. So, yeah, don't want to, you know, spill all the beans here. Well, they're lucky to have you because I'm 
sure you will be as articulate as ever, um, especially considering you could pronounce that sort of subtitle, I guess you could call it. Uh, I wasn't even going to try, so I'm glad you did. Well, I pronounced it. I have no idea if I pronounced <laughs> it even remotely correctly. You did it with confidence, and that's really all that matters. I find that 78% of success is just saying things with confidence. You could be completely wrong, but nobody will say anything. I know. Isn't that crazy? And I've learned recently that uh, I've, I've started to consciously ask questions when I don't understand things. You know, when uh, I used to go along when I didn't understand things, and I still do to some degree, but I would go along, nod, yeah, because I didn't want to be seen as the dummy. Um, but then it was an awakening when one day I sort of just questioned someone on something that I didn't understand. And it was a lightning bolt moment where I realized I, I kind of forgot you could do that. I forgot you could say, I don't know what you mean. And uh, ever since I started doing that, probably a few months ago, now I now everyone thinks I'm an idiot because I ask questions on everything. A big mantra of mine lately has been assume nothing, eradicate all assumptions. Every assumption out there, just eradicate it because it's it's an undue burden on your brain to have to sort of intuit other people, what they're thinking, what they think you're going to do, what, you know, tasks and all this kind of stuff. And so eradicating assumptions means that I ask a lot of dumb questions. Uh, so yeah, people now think I'm an idiot um, or my true idiot nature is being revealed to everyone. But I recommend it to everyone because eradicating assumptions has been very beneficial to me. People no longer come to me for help because they know I'm an idiot. Well, you know, Socrates said that he was wise because he knew that he didn't know. That's true. So really, you're just uh, getting in touch with your inner Socratean self. Wow. I, uh, I, that's exactly what, I, who's Socrates? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you, you, no, you can't ask me questions following up on this podcast because then everyone will know I'm an idiot too. Uh, you know, you, uh, you mentioned that you were playing Odin Sphere literature and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what you didn't say you were playing with, uh, playing was What Remains of Edith Finch, which frequent listeners of this podcast or even infrequent as long as one of those episodes you listened to was the last episode would know that you uh, you committed to playing what remains mm -hmm. of edith finch mm -hmm. this last week so you picked up on that did you i did very very quickly because i played it and it's one of the most amazing games in the entire world so i like an idiot sat here looking forward to the time when you and i dear sweet friends that we are could talk about this game that's really changed my life and uh what i'm learning now is you we were not on the same page. No. Well, we were on the same page. I just, I needed heat and I burned the page. <laughs> and played a different game instead. Got yeah. It. <laughs> yeah. Well, I realized that, you know, I'd spent so much time in this month going through and trying to eke out the final few trophies in Shadow of War that I didn't look to see. I thought Odin's Fear was, you know, kind of a standard action-y beat-em-up sort of thing. And didn't think that it was going to be a 40 to 50 hour game and was dead wrong about that. <laughs> so I thought, you know, I, I better let uh, discretion be the better part of valor and go ahead and, <laughs> and play it since uh, I'm expected to talk about it uh, for a full podcast here in, in a week or two. I guess I, I see your priority when it comes to podcasts that you participate in. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, but, uh, but in all seriousness, no hard feelings because I will be playing it again. So I, I will get plenty of fill uh, with uh, people who have not played it. I'm playing it actually again this weekend tomorrow with a friend of mine who has not played it. And I'm really, really looking forward to it because this game has, uh, has reinvigorated the spark of, um, uh, of of wanting to write uh, again. So you, you introduced me earlier as an author. The truth is I haven't uh, had a book published in a few years now, quite a few years actually, probably 
edging on 10, I would say, um, because I largely sort of just, I fell out of love with, with writing um, to some degree. And also just creating videos has somewhat taken up that creative outlet for me. Um, the scripts that I write in videos, I mean, I have to write those. So the, the writing is still there, but playing What Remains of Edith Finch really just sort of got my mental juices flowing. And I, I, I dare I say I may try to write something long form about the game um, with this weird sort of secret tingly notion that I could write something to the length and to the uh, and to the import of like a boss fight books style thing. Now I, I don't want to. I, I, now that I put that out in the ether, um, I possibly won't uh, be able to commit to that. But there's a lot going on with that game, and this friend that I'm gonna be playing with tom- uh, tomorrow, I'm gonna sort of shut up and allow him to play, and I'm just going to be a, an observer to someone who's experiencing the game for the first time. Um, I'm going to be able to ask maybe certain questions about things that he's passing or that he investigates to kind of get his thoughts on things. And it's going to be a really fun kind of weird experiment, I think, as long as he's comfortable with, you know, sitting there for three hours or so without uh, without me being able to help him. So super looking forward to that. And it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, that sounds amazing. So is it something that you can that you can play multiplayer or is this going to be your friend is playing it and you're more experiencing him take in the game? Absolutely the second. Yeah, there's no multiplayer at all. Um, but the, the game sort of has this observant fourth wall breaking quality to it. It's a, it's a walking sim for lack of a better term. Um, and it has this observant fourth wall breaking kind of feel to it that I feel like me watching him play is almost like kind of how some of how the experience it's it's almost in honoring the the intent of the game to begin with um in a weird weird way so i I look at it as just maybe an exploration in uh in in trying to extrapolate meaning from the game that probably isn't there but i really want it to be there um and he he and i are both authors actually he his name is gordon highland he's written a few books and they're fantastic so definitely people check check him out but um he's not really a, a an avid gamer he kind of got into games a little bit fairly recently um, and so, so he's, uh, so, so he's kind of getting into games as well. And I think this will be an, 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 it'll be an example of, of how far games have come since he last played. He grew up, had an Atari, um, dabbled with, uh, early consoles and stuff like that, but didn't really get back into video games until within the last couple of years, probably. Um, and really hasn't played too many since then. His, his PlayStation four has more dust on it than, uh, than uh, my exercise bike, I guess. Um, <laughs> my, my Xbox One. <laughs> I don't even have an Xbox One <laughs> or two or three or four um, or five. I uh, So it's going to be really interesting. I think he's going to be, him being a lover of narrative and literature, it's going to be kind of cool to see how he processes the game as well because the game is very much influenced by uh, literature. In fact, I tweeted the developer um and ask them if they were inspired by a couple of my favorite authors, one being Mark Z. Danielewski, who wrote a book called House of Leaves that's just an absolutely phenomenal piece of work. Um, it does a lot of really, really cool things visually with with novel form that books just don't generally do. Um, and then also Jorge Luis Borges, which is an, he's an Argentinian author, um, and they both write a lot about uh, text and how books are conduits for other things, and there's a lot of meta-narrative kind of in their in their work, and uh, what remains of Edith Finch just bleeds that. So I reached out to the developer and asked, like, were you guys influenced by this? And they responded with like an enthusiastic yes. They actually had levels planned specifically about those two, you know, uh, House of Leaves and Borges and stuff. And, and wow. they just didn't work thematically. They just didn't work tonally. I think they said. 
Um, but it was kind of just it, it, when when they responded with this within the affirmative, that was kind of what solidified for me that I really need to I need to dedicate some time and write about this this uh, this game uh, and give it give it the proper format. So my my weekend's going to be super fun. Uh, books, uh, writing and uh, <laughs> and a little bit of video game watching. So All right. it would be cool to be able to interview them or something for parts of your book, you know, get some. Yeah, I asked them uh, if they'd be up for it, and they said definitely. So, nice. um, yeah, I hesitated to ask because now it's almost like I'm committed to doing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Although it's good to have that sort of prodding behind uh, any kind of project, I feel like that's. True. And now that you've announced it here, both of our listeners will think, "God, <laughs> where's that book Caleb promised?" <laughs> both of our listeners who are just now learning that I've authored books in the past, so mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of surprises coming at them. But I have, I have leveled off or or I should say uh, uh I've stepped away from the uh the gravitas of a game like What Remains of Edith Finch by continuing to play Super Mario RPG um I've been still playing that with my sons and still loving it um I'm further than I ever have been as I said I think in the previous episode so I won't belabor that but still having a ton of fun on that um and then also I started playing Shadow of the Colossus, a game that I did not play when it was originally released, I think on the PlayStation 2, if I remember correctly, uh, was did, did not play it. I was I loved Eco on PlayStation 2. I was one of the few people that was not scared off by the North American box art for Eco. <laughs> loved it, loved it, loved it. Um, but for some reason, I just never picked up Shadow of the Colossus. No idea why. Uh, but now I'm, I'm rectifying that, and it's really, really, really fun. Um, I feel like it's aged well because I, I would... I would not uh, challenge someone if they told me that this game was re- was released originally, just very recently. So having a lot of fun with that. So that's that's kind of what I'm uh, what I'm up to. Nice, yeah. I I'd never played Shadow of the Colossus either when it was out originally, and I watched the this past weekend. The Cartridge Club did a fundraiser, Buried on Mars, at uh, Twitter at Buried on Mars. Uh, did a fundraiser for the Heart Research Institute up in Canada and raised a couple thousand dollars for uh, heart research. And a bunch of the Cartridge Club members did live streams and um, played through a bunch of stuff. And I think, I can't remember who played Shadow of the Colossus. The, I think the Frantic did. Yes. I think, yeah. yeah, I think you're right. I think it was Frantic. Um, but it looked gorgeous mm-hmm. and really got me excited to play it. And it, one of the things that it, it made me wonder was how did you start playing it? Because I know you're not buying new games. <laughs> Damn it. I was the only one that was supposed to call you out on things you promised you would do and didn't. <laughs> um, this was an exception. Um, it's, it's an exception and I... I promise it's an exception. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I get the sense that you don't believe me. No, that was my, that was my, I fully believe you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, which is funny because I do have to follow it up with immediately by saying that I did in fact get another game just today, but the game I got today was one I pre-ordered long, long ago before uh, this year even. So, uh, and that was secret of mana or mana. Um, but uh, th- those are, those are kind of the only games and I, and there really aren't any, Oh, and hey, hey, how about this? This is a perfect opportunity for me to say that I did, in fact, not purchase the most recent limited run games releases. And so for uh, infrequent listeners of this podcast, know that I have every single PlayStation 4 limited run games release all the way back since the very beginning, 50 some games, I think, uh, 
and this is the first one that I have not purchased. So that should hopefully show how committed I am to this whole I need to cut back on my game buying thing. Um, and if you don't hear Scott with any sort of uh, rebuttal or retort, it's probably because he just had a heart attack and died because I just interrupted a collecting s series, um, which probably sounds sacrilege to you, Scott. Scott? Scott? Scott, are you there? Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm stunned. I, I don't even, my brain can't even comprehend what you just said. Uh, yeah, and I don't feel bad. I feel actually just fine, which is, uh, it, it, it goes to show how little I actually needed to maintain that streak for so long, probably. I do know a little bit of uh, what you're talking about with that relief. So for a long time, ever since the there's a Japanese sort of niche game uh, publisher here in the U.S. called Nippon Ichi Software, NIS America, and they have been localizing and bringing over Japanese and just Asian games in general uh, and bringing them and releasing them here in the in the states since i think back in the uh, playstation 2 era and during the playstation 2 early on they they created their own site and started selling uh exclusive limited editions for pretty much every release that they came out with that was exclusively available through their website and i had a complete set i had bought i had every single NIS America limited edition set from when they first started back in PlayStation 2 all the way through like August of last year. And finally, for whatever reason, I just stopped mainly because the limited editions that they were coming out with kept getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> and one of the things that I really liked about them was that they were they were sort of just a game with a, a game sized art book packaged with maybe a soundtrack CD and they they were very shelf friendly and as they kept getting bigger and bigger, I just have less and less room. And so finally I just said, all right, I'm done. I'm cutting it off and I'm going just, uh, just standard editions from here on out. And I, I also did not die. Uh, <laughs> I, my, my soul may have died a little bit. What little was left of it after you know, two, two decades of college. <laughs> I love that there, that your now, keep in mind, me as as a non-collector, um, you know, your statement was, I'm, I refuse to get the collector's editions anymore. So it's only normal editions for me now. So it's not as though it was a complete <laughs> sever. It was, I'm still, of course, going to collect the rest of them. I mean, I'm not a crazy person, but. Uh, right. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a heathen. <laughs> uh, Mr. Collector, what else have you picked up? Uh, I say, what else? You haven't, I, I assume Shadow of Mana, Mana, Mana because that is a, uh, a somewhat uh, kind of, I don't know if limited is the right word, but I assume that's one of them. What kind of, what else have you done? I did also buy uh, Shadow of Mana and Secret of the Colossus. <laughs> uh, both of those, picked those up. I also got uh, Wonder Boy Dragon's Trap for the Switch. I had purchased the limited run games releases back when they were out um, 
a few months ago and now that just came out again for the ps4 and the switch and these ones are the uh Nicalis releases so they the first print of them comes with some extra goodies a little cd soundtrack sampler in there and um i've got all the Nicalis games for the switch so far and their an original print run version with the extra goodies so kept that going uh it's got a nice reversible cover art and one thing that's cool about the I haven't looked at the disc for the PlayStation 4 version yet, but the cartridge on the Switch version, actually the label looks like a, a Sega Master System label. It's got the red background with the, the grid artwork on it, which is kind of kind of neat. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. And while you keep talking, I'm actually going to go grab mine because I did open mine. Um, I'm going to go grab mine and see real quick. So you keep talking. Yeah, I will. I will. <laughs> so another, a couple other things that I got was another... Um, Game in a set that I know Caleb was going for at one point, and I'm pretty close to myself, and that's the Soidesco collection on PlayStation 4. We've discussed the, the Soidesco games on yeah. multiple, multiple episodes here in, in the past few months, and they just released a new one uh, here just a week ago called Black Hole Complete Edition, and it's a... 2d platformer very cool very cool artwork and it's a sci-fi comedy if you haven't heard of it definitely check out the trailer and the trailer is absolutely hilarious uh the whole thing is fully voiced and you've got uh, characters sort of bantering back and forth all the way through levels and and throughout the storyline so hmm. uh it is a, a single player game uh which is you know kind of right up my alley um, and I love platformers, so looking forward to diving into that one at, at some point. Maybe that'll be my B for the 2018 Cartridge Club Alphabet Backlog Challenge. Yeah, that looks a, like a lot of fun. Um, it, you say uh, like a funny sci-fi game. Uh, there's a game called Nova 111 um, mm-hmm. fairly recently that was also, I would describe as, as a funny sci-fi game, a humorous sci-fi game, which is kind of cool. The art style actually are kind of similar between the two games. Uh, Nova 111 was more of a strategic uh, turn-based kind of thing, puzzle game, rather than a platformer. But yeah, Black Hole looks really cool. I can't wait to get it next year. <laughs> <laughs> My guess is it doesn't... You, you, I'm going to talk you into buying it before next year. <laughs> is that your goal? Is that your... That's my goal. Yep. <laughs> yep. My goal is to break your will. You jerk. <laughs> um, I can confirm the uh, Wonder Boy, the Dragon's Trap for PS4 Limited Run, not... Uh, a Sega Master System looking disc. Ah, oh, bummer. Yeah, bummer. I did get two other titles. Um, three games, two titles. I got two copies of, uh, a copy for the PlayStation 4 and a copy for the PlayStation Vita of Unepic, which is a limited release from East Asia Soft, which are exclusively available through PlayAsia. Um, they have been releasing East Asia Shoft and PlayAsia have been teaming up for uh, limited runs, almost like limited edition or limited run games. They except they come in uh, nice collectors boxes, uh, f- shelf friendly. They're typically a game, uh, a sticker, a individually numbered certificate and hologram sticker on the box. Uh, CD soundtrack and then a, a little art book is what's typically been in all of them um, and I think they're on like their 11th or 12th release now but uh, Unepic looks like kind of a, a dungeon delver uh, platform adventure action adventure game and 
one of the things that I was excited to see when I opened up my package and, and got my grubby little hands on my, my limited edition copies was the individual number on my Vita copy is 001, which is the first time I've ever even seen a 001 <laughs> serial number. Uh, so that was pretty cool. I, I tweeted that out and both Play Asia and East Asia Soft were like, celebrating it it's kind of kind of fun they put zero zero one on all of them actually yeah, yeah. probably probably <laughs> but hey don't don't shatter my little uh, delusion <laughs> nope that's the only thing i live for it will continue <laughs> that's fair enough turnabout <laughs> is fair play and then the last game that i got was another playstation 4 game and it is kingdom come deliverance and this is a game that i was kind of excited to play it's an action rpg sort of open world game uh that's set in sort of medieval european setting um so if you can kind of think um almost like a strongholds mixed with oblivion uh, that's kind of what it looks like Apparently the game is a broken mess because they've already released, I think, two different like double digit gig patches uh, here in launch week. So uh, I think I'm going to give that one a while before I even crack the seal. In those types of situations, because you don't open the games when you first get them, would you consider just selling that one on eBay and then waiting till a fully patched version comes along? Or would you fear that uh, the a new version that would come along that would be fully patched would also have you know a different cover or would be more of a end of year edition or something like that and therefore would be a completely separate entity in terms of collecting. If I was going for a complete set, I would they would both if in that situation they would both qualify for the set um, because they would be I would consider them separate releases. I'm not going for a p- complete PlayStation four set. I don't think it's just going to be too overwhelming. I believe, I think, yeah, but, yeah. uh, a lot of times then in, if I'm not going for a complete set, I will hold off for at least, um, get the, the gold version or definitive version or whatever it ends up being called then later on. And actually a game that I picked up this week that I didn't mention that, uh, just wasn't on my list to talk about was Recore the Definitive Edition. Uh, I got that a good deal on that. I think it was like cost me ten bucks, and I had the original Recore edition, but that game was also a broken mess at the beginning. And in September of 2017, they released a free patch that was pretty massive and went and fixed a lot of the technical problems that were with the the game engine that just made it a a, a poorly rated nightmare. And um, supposedly the game is is you know, night and day different uh, in terms of its playability and it achieving sort of what it set out to do early on uh, here in the definitive edition. So hmm. nice. Yeah. Nice. So that is everything that, uh, that I've picked up since our last episode, little, little bit of light at light couple of weeks, just what uh, five or six different pickups. Yeah. Super light. Uh, yeah. 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 Well, yeah, but you know, next I I'll, I guarantee you I will do better next week or next episode because I already have some things on order that will will be worth talking about. Yeah, but there may come a time when uh, you won't be getting all of these physical pickups, especially if Google perhaps has their way about things. Mm-hmm. Uh, evil Google, evil Google. No, I, I'm a, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Google is my Apple. I think that's the that's the way I look at it. 
Uh, we all got to have these weird uh, loves of uh, tech companies, I think. And I, I mm-hmm. do enjoy Google. And, and this recent, uh, this brings us right into our current events, actually, which we should probably have some sort of poly Killian uh, transition uh, for these things, but we don't. So current events. Um, yeah. <laughs> so there has been a report that Google is considering creating a uh, gaming service or, or a gaming perhaps console or streaming service, something to do with games. Uh, this notice came out uh, f- uh, just recently um, with the codename of Yeti. And there's been a lot of speculation about what this could possibly mean. Um, some people are uh, suspect, uh, guessing that it would be a subscription-based streaming service that might be delivered via Chromecast. Um, the uh, the the question there is how exactly would c- controllers connect to a Chromecast? Um, so, or there's also speculation about possibly being a console of sorts. I'm of the belief that it might be a console of sorts, but perhaps we can get down to that conversation here as we go on. Um, there's, there's some initial, you know, it, it, what's interesting about this, this is that it's, it's been held, it's been kept under wraps for so long, but the, uh, article, uh, mentions that the service had been reportedly been developed for two years and, uh, it was so far along that there was reports that it was actually considered at one time for a holiday 2017 launch. Um, but it was delayed for whatever reason which is cool because, uh, you know, if it was that far along and we're just now getting some information about it is kind of an interesting thought, an interesting idea. It just goes to show how secretive, you know, Google and other tech companies can be sometimes. So I'm kind of personally excited about this this initiative. Again, I already mentioned my love of Google. I really like them. And I'm, I'm really kind of interested about this. And before I get into some of what uh, could potentially be some of the complaints that people may have about this type of thing. I, I figured I would uh, toss it over to you, Scott, and see if you have any initial gut thoughts on it as well. It probably has to be hardware-based. I, I just don't think that the... I don't think internet infrastructure and connectivity is to a stage yet where we can really, truly deliver top-tier, high-end gaming in a streaming environment. You know, I think... You, even if you're talking, looking at things like turning retro systems into you know, upscaling them and things for modern televisions and using wireless wireless controllers with them, people have issues with the video lag that happens on something like a Frame Meister, and it's really only like one frame of lag, which is you know virtually nothing. Um, and or or the control leg from using something like a, an 8-bit dough Bluetooth controller with their Bluetooth receivers and a Super Nintendo or a Nintendo. Um, all of those devices, because the consoles weren't developed for Bluetooth, the they're not they don't have any kind of uh, adjustment built into them to compensate for that leg like modern Bluetooth um, native controlled systems do. And I think you would just you would exponentially increase that leg and that latency between button push on a controller through a you know a a Google Chromecast through a, your internet connection out to the server that's doing the processing back to your Chromecast and out to your TV like that there that that's it, it's massively more um, more latency that's in the uh, in the equation than just uh, you know what you see in in modern upscaling so I think it has to be something that's done site side you know and in terms of being done where your TV is. Um, and I don't think that I, I think the the concern about the controller connectivity to a Chromecast is 
a little weird because I, I even if it was done on something like a Chromecast, I'm not saying that it has to be a full blown system. It can be you could easily have a set top or a set back um, gaming console. Just look at you know the the Retro Pie. Those are easily tucked away behind a television that's mounted on a wall. You know you can make them pretty small form factor and. I don't think a system for Google necessarily has to be big and beefy. Um, I think it is interesting that that Google hired Phil Harrison, right? He was the uh, one of the early guys in in PlayStation at Sony. Uh, I think he was there for like fifteen years, and and then after that he went to Xbox. And Google hired him, and he's in their their hardware division. So I think that. Just that alone sort of points to the fact that this will be this will have some sort of dedicated hardware going with it. Yeah, I think uh, I think if there is a company that can make streaming video games work, it would be Google. Um, Google has that infrastructure, at least they're in the process of building that infrastructure. Um, I think if that if it were possible, they would be the company that could tackle it, could handle it. And I wouldn't I wouldn't sell them short on the idea that they could create brand new technologies that would be able to handle that type of thing that we aren't even considering. I mean, could they build uh, technology? Could they build a box that prioritizes those things that are specifically uh, uh, that specifically cause lag? You know, could they insist developers build games in which uh, non-essential assets are uh, deprioritized over the essential input type things, uh, button clicks, things like that? I mean, I think there's opportunity there for it to happen. It could also be, I mean, one of the things that that Google likes to do is disrupt. Uh, You know, they have, uh, my phone carrier is Google, is Project Fi, Google's uh, Google's cell phone uh, service. And for some people listening, they may, this may be the first time they've ever even heard of Project Fi. And the reason why for that is because Google doesn't, doesn't aim to take over a market. Um, They aim to show people that it can be done a different way. And that's what they've done with Google Fi. Um, It's much, much cheaper than any program than any service out there um and it's uh it's it's just as reliable if not more reliable than any service i've had in the past um and it's it's a great service but it's not it's not widely available because that's not really the intent i think google just wants to show you that it can be done differently um with google fiber i also have google fiber internet connection speeds same thing if google really wanted to they have the they have the finances to uh to put google fiber anywhere and everywhere people want it to be. I, I don't think that's a problem. I think, again, they they just want to disrupt. They want to be there to show people that it can be done differently and you can think about it differently. Um, so I, I, I have high, I have hopes that if this thing is true, if, if, the, uh, if Google really is developing a game console, it could be something unlike that, unlike we can really fathom. Not to say that it would be futuristic and crazy, but it could be something we're just not even considering. Is, could it be a plug-and-play system that is capable of handling uh, much more graphically intense games? Or could it simply be a way to play Android, you know, Google Play Store type games, but just more reliably on a small box. I doubt it's something that simple because they wouldn't be hiring Phil Harrison to do something like that. But I, I don't know. I think it could be kind of cool. Uh, I, I would say that, um, you know, the the idea that it was possibly going to come out or there was possibly plans for it to come out in holiday of 2017 and there wasn't really any marketing or anything about it that we were aware of, um, but then was delayed you know, the conspiracy theorist and me might say that could it have been delayed because of all the uh, hubbub of net neutrality and the fact that there was the discussions of, of repealing net neutrality. And if Google's entire business model depended upon 
a fair and equal internet service connection without having people charge, you know, be charged more for fast lanes, all that kind of crazy stuff. Could that alone be a reason why Google says, well, let me back up and therefore add more credence to the fact that maybe that it is a streaming only type of service and they really did require or bank on um, bandwidth to be able to do that. So I don't know. I'm I'm optimistic about what it could be if it is in fact something. Um, and in fact, I'm so optimistic that depending on on what it turns out to be, like I'm already in my head thinking I could very well be like a day one adopter for this kind of thing. So it just interests me greatly. I'm wondering if the, which came first, the decision, if in fact it was originally slated for a, a holiday 17 release, if they decided to hold off on it and then decided to go hire Phil Harrison, or if that was already mm. in the works ahead of time. Now, uh, Phil Harrison announced that he was joining Google on via a tweet on January 22nd. So it wasn't, it was basically just a month ago. Um, and I'm wondering if they, they saw what they were developing and thought, you know, we, we really need to bring on some, someone that's, that's done a, a multiple big, game console launches to sort of spearhead this and um you know maybe it is ready to roll and it's just needed the the right um operational expertise to get behind the the launch of it the and we have to also consider that people speculating that it was considered launching for holiday 2017 could be that yeah back in 2013 they thought let's make a video game system and launch it by holiday 2017 so it could have just been one of those arbitrary timelines that um, is just, you know, written down somewhere, but was never actually something that was going to be possible to hit as scope changes um, and as the industry itself changes. And that could probably possibly add credence to the idea that they hire, you know, Phil Harrison after they realize they have something here that they want to make bigger. Um, You know, even if they did go a traditional console route, if they went a traditional console route, they have the finances, they have the money to be able to get good developers on board. And if video gaming is going, I mean, if video game is already multiplayer to to a huge degree, online interact, online play to a huge degree. I mean, Google owns a lot of you know uh, uh, Wi-Fi infrastructure. They own cabling. They Google Fiber. You know, they own that kind of stuff, and so they have a strong voice when it comes to how that stuff operates. And so they could possibly build, yeah, a great home console system, but maybe the best online experience as well you know i know that's pretty grandiose because they haven't really done this at all so of course they're they're dipping their toes in the water so to speak but um but it's possible you know er, er, anything's possible google if google says it's possible then it's possible that's what i say i wonder too just with the success of the the switch i wonder if we haven't seen if that if that could be part of the delay too is making Mm. something that's more more of a hybrid uh, a portable console hybrid again they making use of their connectivity plays with google fiber and with uh you know the google wi-fi and and cellular service and i wonder if maybe a delay could be to pivot and make it a hybrid i tend to think that given the success of the switch that any game system released going forward from either of the any of the big three will be more of this hybrid. I think the PlayStation Five and the Xbox Two. <laughs> why Pro- Xbox Y? <laughs> the Xbox Y. Yeah. <laughs> 
uh, will probably be hybrid systems. Uh, I think it, it's just too much of a copycat industry where, I mean, you look at the Wii, the Wii was successful and immediately we had PlayStation Move and uh, Xbox Connect. You know, I I think that and VR, VR happens and everybody needs wants to be part of VR except for Nintendo. Um, I think no. that it's just it's proven too successful for Sony and Microsoft and perhaps Google not to play the Me Too game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true, very true. Well, I hope the game that Google doesn't play is the let's also have a bunch of loot crates in our games mm-hmm. um, because mm-hmm. uh, as it turns out, um, that is uh, loot crates and that system is being looked upon not terribly favorably in some instances um fill us in on that yeah so hawaii uh, legislators in hawaii a couple of months back after the hubbub about star wars battlefront 2 um all came out right they hawaii legislators announced this week that they've actually put forward two bills now um after saying they were planning on it it's actually up in the state house and senate for debate and vote in hawaii uh two different bills one of which would prohibit the sale of loot crate to anyone under 21 years of age um which is interesting i mean i to me i i don't see why it would be 21 and not 18 um I, I think you know if you're if you're old enough to pick the leaders of the free world, you should probably be old enough to buy stupid loot boxes. <laughs> but that's just me. The other one is, I think, more interesting. The other bill, that bill would require labeling on all games that contain loot boxes. So at purchase, uh, you know, like the. The Nintendo Switch games that require a download have this big, ugly white banner on them that say internet connection and SD card required. So uh, these games that would be have loot box as part of their ecosystem would require blatantly labeling it such when you are actually purchasing the game itself. And then the other requirement of this piece of legislature is that it would require the posting of uh, loot box odds for every piece of uh, loot or, or possible drop that you get out of the loot boxes. Um, so, I mean, I think I, I tend to be more in the free market realm, but it's clear that the market has led to this disaster of loot boxes in the first place. So uh, I guess good on Hawaii for trying to at least do something about, I guess, what is what is really ultimately I, I'm in the ga- camp that this is basically gambling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of where I go to it as well. I mean, I'm generally fine with f- uh, free market principles, um, but if there is already laws to govern gambling, then I think by proxy there has to be laws to govern this because they it is very much gambling. I believe, and I don't have stats to support this, this is a gut reaction, but I'm not sure that any of those things alone are going to prevent, uh, prevent, are going to change people's minds other than possibly labeling on games that says they contain loot boxes. Um, prohibiting sales to those under 21, um, possibly um but usually i would say if you're under 21 uh or at least under 18 or 16 or something it's probably your parents buying the games for you anyway mm-hmm. and so if if game developers can make the covers look friendly and can make the copy on the back of the game seem not too terribly violent or crazy 
then I think a parent's going to say, well, the game is happy and fun and, and, and friendly and therefore I'm going to buy it for my child and not really care too much about the whole loot box thing until it becomes, until it hits the parents in the wallet. But mm-hmm. I think if it's, if it's hit parents in the wallet, I'll, then those parents are already taking action independent of what's going on here. So I don't know that that's necessarily going to change anything. Um, requiring the odds, I have a feeling that will not do anything. I mean, people buy lottery tickets for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. So there's yeah. no that's not going to change anything. Um, I think requiring the label on the games that contain loot boxes may have some impact only because every time you look at a store shelf or you look at a uh, a, a an online uh, uh, digital uh, store store front, you are you're essentially having to make decision. You're being you're being propositioned to make decisions all over again. You may have walked into the store with a specific game in mind, but as soon as you see all of those games, you uh, are going to th- possibly think differently or possibly have a different uh, a different you know conversion path. You might think something else. And so that may be a decision maker. This game is going to force me to buy or encourage me to buy additional things. This game is not, and I may ultimately choose the one that's not. So that's my initial thoughts on it. Me personally, I don't play any games that have loot boxes. And, well, if I do play them, I don't know that they're in there because as soon as I'm I'm presented with that option, it's just no. <laughs> I, yep. I'm pretty firm with that. It's, it doesn't make any sense to me. But, you know, I'm not the – I'm a sample set of one. So I tend – I going back to the pro- prohibition of loot box sales to those under 21, I just wonder from a – operational perspective how that would even work typically when you're you're restricting sales to to minors you've got to be 18 to get a credit card kind of thing and and that's how they gate the age limit so how then in an online marketplace where by definition loot boxes are online purchases do you even effectuate a ban of Mm -hmm. sales to those under 21 that's a really good point. My guess is that we don't hear much about it and the the bills kind of get either perma, you know, just tossed on the floor and discussed and never actually voted on. Or I just don't think that um, I don't think that one state could could really make a shift in the in the industry. Um, mm-hmm. I think what it if Cal, I'm sorry, if Hawaii passes some of these laws and game manufacturers would affect it and no no other state does then game manufacturers would have to create special editions or special labeling or special packaging just for hawaii um and i'm wondering if that would just impact game availability in hawaii to begin Mm -hmm. with um like it, I, I don't think that game manufacturers would would do sort of a Canada right where Quebec has the laws about having to have things in English and French. So most games that are published for Canada are all just bilingual. Mm-hmm. Uh, I doubt that you would see the same sort of thing for to comply with a, a legislature legis, legislature like this. Yeah, or, I mean, it could be as simple as a sticker. I mean, if it's a physical edition, it could be stickers applied to the games. That's true. I don't know if that would legally solve the issue, but I think also, to your point about most games being online, loot boxes by their very definition being online, it's possible that the people who crafted this bill, too, are just too out of touch to realize that that's a hurdle, you know, that they just still assume games are purchased in physical stores, and that's that. So, yeah, it's possible. 
You know what else is possible? <laughs> Lots of things, but proceed. <laughs> <laughs> Did Nintendo sell us a bill of stolen goods? Mm, I like the way that you, mm. you phrase that. So uh, possibly. So uh, this story is, I thought was pretty interesting, and I wanted to bring it up specifically because uh, I felt like you would have some sort of uh, insight into this. So it was discovered that uh, evidence is very strong and that Nintendo is uh, one of the ROMs, I believe, isn't it a one of the ROMs in the uh, NES Mini or or one of the ROMs that are um, associated with, I, I believe it's the NES Mini. Let me actually just do a quick scan through here. Um, no, it was the Wii it version. Was, it was yeah. the yeah the Wii version of Super. So the Wii version of Super Mario Brothers. Uh, when you download that ver- via the Virtual Console, um, what there is evidence to suggest that you might actually be uh, using an illegal copy of the ROM. So a repurposed illegal copy, I should say specifically. And this would the the evidence is that there was there's someone who who you know dumped the ROM of Super Mario Brothers. It was online. Uh, Nintendo then, you know, one needed a a version of this game for their Wii uh, Virtual Console, and found this one online and decided to use it. That that's there's a lot of assumptions there, but that's essentially what it kind of boils down to. Um, and a couple of things, a couple of things kind of went through my head here. Um, I'll ask the first one almost rhetor- uh, rhetorically, and then I will follow up with one very specifically for you, Scott. So the first one is. Doesn't Nintendo have a version of that ROM already? Like, why would they even need to steal it? Or I sh- why would they even need to acquire it online? It would seem like that's something that they would have access to on their own already. But when you got a company that big, I suppose, and, and someone in some departments given the directive to, you know, uh, 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 put a game on sale somewhere, they're probably going to follow a path of least resistance and just get a copy of that ROM any way they possibly can. And, and the fastest way might just be online. I don't know. But the more uh, pertinent question and the question that the article actually specifically asks is, is this illegal? Is it illegal for Nintendo to sell um, this ROM uh, to, to, to quote unquote steal this ROM from the person who stole it from them um, and resell it? And so I'll leave the question there vaguely or I'll leave the question there because, Scott, I'm sure you have some uh, great commentary on this. Well, from a legal perspective, even if even if the story is 100 percent true. And Nintendo, you know, some some guy at Nintendo went and downloaded a downloaded the ROM off the internet and put that into the Virtual Console for sale. Assuming that's all true, and I I don't know enough about the ROM coding specifics to know whether the evidence is strong or not. Um, but assuming it is, and assuming it's a hundred percent true, Nintendo didn't do anything wrong. Um, Nintendo owns the IP meaning that they own the game source code, they own the likeness of Mario, they own the storyline, everything about that game Nintendo owns. So just like stolen physical items, someone who steals something doesn't ever actually gain any property interest in that item. So whether it's a ROM, whether it's a movie downloaded off the internet, whether it's your car whether it's your even your land if your neighbor goes and um, you know, builds a shed and half of it is on your property and you say hey half of that shed is on my property right if you don't just leave it be and they end up getting you know, um, 
a basically common law ownership of it, uh, which is not possible in this case, <laughs> the Nintendo case, then you you could go and basically wall off part of the part of the garage that's on your property and and you know sell your house with comes with half a garage right <laughs> um but i guess all this is to say that whoever ripped the rom and put it out on the internet never actually owns it so nintendo Nintendo never loses ownership of that IP, so Nintendo can't, by definition, steal something that they already own. Let me throw a dumb hypothetical at you, Um, and I know how dangerous hypotheticals can be in the legal world, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, If I let's look at at the the world of hacks, so game hacks. So someone takes the source code for Mario Brothers. They repurpose it and create a new game using all the Mario characters, all that kind of stuff. Um, while it's true that they wouldn't own the Mario characters, do they still own the code that they used to uh, highlight Mario in a different way? Um, do they do they own that code, and could Nintendo also take that code? So then if, if Nintendo wanted to basically take a hack that someone made, um, could Nintendo, do they have the rights to take that, do you think? Probably. Huh. Interesting. I think most, it really depends on, I I think the game code itself would be part of the IP that Nintendo owns because Nintendo's not releasing games under like a, a, you know, an open source licensor. Gotcha. And if you, if you, if Nintendo was releasing Mario and saying, Hey, this, the code we're, we're maintaining ownership of all of the artwork, all of the uh, design, all of the graphical design assets, but the code itself is open source then that you know then the the community could grab this the code reskin all of the graphics and do whatever they wanted with the code itself um but the fact that it's not open source means that the code is part of the intellectual property of the product and copying that even if you copied it and changed it a little bit um you w- would still likely be running afoul of of IP law that makes sense and so would it be a situation, do you think, where um, it, where, where Nintendo would basically have sort of a stop making that game or stop trying to sell that game or stop doing that? Um, but let's say you introduced a new character along with this hack. So you, you took Nintendo's source code, you kind of modify it, broke it apart a little bit. But for all intents and purposes, it remained fairly close to Nintendo's original source code. But you introduced your very own code into the game that that had a new character, for example. Um do you think do you think Nintendo? It sounds like I'm 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 doing like a fake like I'm asking for a friend. I swear to God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do you think? But I know nothing about how to uh, how to uh, use assembly languages and create games, uh, create Nintendo games. So, um, do you think Nintendo would would their legal? Do you think? Uh, and again, this is all hypothetical. But do you think their legal uh, limits would be? Hey, stop making that hack. Or do you think they would actually still be able to say because the code that you created, person is part of is now is now integrated with this code that we created we can also take the code that you created and and that's ours now um i guess it almost has an element to um like mods and things like that like that's Mm -hmm. actually probably a more apt scenario right except that games that have modding abilities are generally like their general publishers are generally cool with that um you know because you're not 
selling the mods necessarily, except Bethesda when they create their, you know, creator studio or creator club or whatever it is where they did try to kind of monetize some of the stuff. But um, do you think Nintendo would have the right to be able to say, you know, the character you created it even because it because it started off of my source code, even though it's your own code, I can take that as well? Or do you think it's more of a, hey, Nintendo says stop that and, and it ends there? I think it's probably the latter. Mm-hmm. Um, I think then I think I think it would be a stretch for Nintendo to take ownership then of the character you created. Um, but I think they could definitely step in with a, a cease and desist yeah. and and tell you to stop selling or distributing the game. That's they're really telling you to stop distributing the game. That's the that's their portion of it. And very likely your character relies on that to exist, mm-hmm. but there would be nothing most likely for Nintendo to be to do or whoever owns the IP of the underlying game to if you then took that character and and made your own game um, from scratch or licensed another game and put it in there, um, they most likely wouldn't be able to do anything about that because that character was your own creation. Hmm. That's a good point. That is a good point. Um, so do you think, uh, uh, you know, this idea of, of intellectual property and owning things and people repurposing it, um, do you think Cleopatra has any, uh, any grounds to sue Assassin's Creed Origins uh, off of their discovery? tour mode probably not because uh cleopatra is sort of in the in the public domain now because she's been you know dead for just over the 75 year copyright <laughs> window um so i think she, it would probably be you know her case would probably get rolled up into a carpet and thrown right out <laughs> uh elaborate on this whole uh, discovery tour what the hell is it it sounds super cool and i know you're super excited about it I am really stoked about it. So I'm a history nerd. One of my undergrads is in history, uh, ancient history specifically. So obviously longtime listeners will know Assassin's Creed Origins sort of checked all of my boxes. Um, And back in episode 10, when we talked a little bit about the hidden chamber in the pyramid that was actually announced after the game was released and was discovered in the pyramid. Um, In that episode, we also talked about how Assassin's Creed Origins developers were getting ready to introduce a new mode to the game called Discovery Tour. And the Discovery Tour mode is now ready, and it is going live Tuesday, February 20th, so the day after this podcast releases. And what it is, is it's essentially a free roam mode to the game that removes all of the enemies, all of the pitfalls, all of the... um, all of the requirements and inhibitions for moving around and exploring. And what it's designed to do is allow, uh, allow people and really allow teachers to show students uh, what ancient Egypt was like, because they did such a meticulous job recreating ancient Egypt for Assassin's Creed. Um, so, Discovery Mode is a free update for anybody that owns Assassin's Creed Origins, um, but it's also available as a, a standalone for if you don't own Assassin's Creed Origins. I think on PC, I think, is the only way it works uh, without the game, but it's 20 bucks, um, and you can just go and explore Egypt and explore all of the the beautiful world that uh, that Ubisoft has put together in, in Assassin's Creed Origins. And one of the things that goes along with discovery tour mode is the the things that are in the world that are not um 
accurately recreated. They actually have a, a little developer's diary type section that uh, drops in you know, video clips and 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 uh, written articles and things about why they made the design decisions they did and and why things that you may be looking at might differ slightly from uh, what archaeologists and historians think actually was going on in in ancient Egypt. So I think it's just a really cool tool for for 20 bucks. You know, I mean, obviously, we all know how strapped for cash all of our school systems are. Um, but to be able to tap into something that was you know really a multi multi million dollar development um, and use it for not only fun, but then to repurpose it for education and getting kids jazzed about learning about history. I I am all over it. Yeah, I'm super excited. I, I think it's a very cool idea, too. And I, I hadn't played Assassin's Creed Origins, but this almost makes me want to go play the base game just so I can experience this, um, knowing that, of course, I don't have to experience the base game for this. But I think it would be kind of cool to get familiar in the base game's context and then kind of as a gamer, of course, that excites me to be able to actually play the game first. Um, one of the other amazing things about this, too, is they didn't stop just the visuals. They didn't stop at just the developer diaries. They actually have a mode that allows you to inhabit the non-playable characters as well uh, because the details of those cycles, those non-playable character cycles, are so meticulous as well that you, being able to inhabit the NPCs um, and kind of almost just sit back and see how they go about their day-to-day -day lives is also a learning experience in and of itself. You can actually watch someone who makes bread you can watch the entire animation cycle of them making the bread and what they and you know the process they they would do for going about that and these are things that uh, i believe are things that were part of the game but you probably just would not have experienced those in the actual game they were sort of mm -hmm. side dressing but here you can actually inhabit those um one of the um one of the points that the article makes is that there's even uh toothache animations because apparently uh the the uh, tools that Egyptians used to make bread um, also led to dental attrition. So there's mm -hmm. toothache animations with some of these non-playable characters, and that kind of stuff is just so cool that they put in so much detail in there. Um, it's almost, in a weird way, though, it's also kind of scary because if this type of thing catches on, imagine how easily it would be then for nefarious developers to be able to sort of rewrite history in a way you know if now people are introduced to egyptian history and feel like this is sort of the definitive way to to really truly understand egyptian history why not why wouldn't a nefarious developer not kind of make it suit their needs so as soon as these types of projects start getting funded by things like the Koch brothers and big like you know big huge companies with millions and millions and millions of dollars that have agendas when that starts happening, then I'll get even more scared, but I can see it possibly going that direction, I think. I think that's inevitable outside of these kinds of projects. I mean, everybody's got an agenda, whether you're a corporation or a communist college professor. You know, I mean, it's... <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Who's to say the college professor would only let you inhabit certain NPCs, you know? Like, yeah. you're not allowed to inhabit the uh, Cleopatra character. You have to <laughs> inhabit the, you know, the poverty's, uh, pauperous bread-making character. Exactly, yeah. Now, I, I think it's just really cool. And this is the, you know, Assassin's Creed as a series obviously has always been primarily set in historical periods and they've always tried to do a good job of recreating those historical settings and you're always obviously fighting the the fight of balancing 
a production schedule with a game world that fits sort of the action and the narrative with um, recreating the historicity of, of the world. Um, and, and so I think this is a, a cool way to, you know, in the where the game differs, I think having those glimpses into why it differs and why those choices were made, I think gives us a chance to learn not only about the history of Egypt, but also a little bit about game development and storytelling. Um, so I think there are more things that that a mode like this can teach us than just history. Yeah, you make a really good point about how uh, the Assassin's Creed series has always been very, uh, very concerned with accuracy, very to a, to a meticulous degree. Um, and I think that's most evident pros- possibly in uh, Assassin's Creed Unity when um, I learned that a lot of people didn't have faces back then. I, I was unaware that that mm-hmm. was a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Very interesting yep. to learn that information. Uh, a little scary. Uh, it makes me wonder how people uh, survived, how the species survived. I'm not sure I would be able to uh, get an erection should uh, women not have faces. Yep, yep. But may, but you know what? I've never seen it personally, so maybe that's my thing and I don't even know it, you know? Yeah, you know, it, it takes all kinds. <laughs> it does. It does, in fact. Uh, I don't know how I'm going to segue into this next story. Uh, but I'll find a way because that's my, that's our MO here. We've got to find a way. So, uh, mm-hmm. power through speaking of women without faces, um, and decision-making in terms of should you procreate with this person or not, if this, then that, if she has a face, then I will procreate. If this, then that is a very, very, very cool <laughs> man this is this, i'm I, this is tough this is tough I, i'm i'm getting there so uh <laughs> so if this then that is um a it, it's a sort of a programming logic shorthand uh for um for how you you know make binary statements and programming and everything but it that whole concept has been repurposed for um a very specific tool online aptly called if this then that uh that is a series of applets essentially that allow you to connect uh, apps and co- connect uh, websites and connect various things so that you can um, create your own alerts or create your own sort of mini applications. Uh, perhaps I could best describe this with an example of a way that I personally use it. Um, I have the If This Then That app s- installed on my phone and I have it set up so that if I'm ever within the uh, parameter of our local Target store, uh, it will automatically send a text message to my wife that says, I'm at Target, do you need anything? So if I, as soon as I step into Target, as soon as I step into that, those parameters of the building, I will inevitably five minutes later get an email or I get a message from my wife that says, yes, can you buy, you know, apples or whatever. So that's one way that I use it. I also at work, I have it set up so that if I connect to the work, uh, to my work's uh, Wi-Fi network on my phone, then it will mute my phone so that as soon as I walk into work, my phone, my personal phone gets muted. So I'm not just distracted by it or anything like that. So this is kind of cool, but there, the, the reason we bring it up here is because there was an article about using if this, then that applets to find cheap video games online. And, uh, I largely brought it up. It's, it's not too terribly interesting to me just because again, I'm on a game buying hiatus, but I wasn't sure if Scott, you used anything similar to this or any other sort of tricks and tips or anything like that, that you use to find good game deals. Since I know you are always on the hunt for good game deals. I am always looking for a deal. I am a, uh, a fan of the thrifting. I have never used if this, then that for 
game hunting, though. I think it's it's fascinating. I am definitely going to have to do some more research on this. the The article that that we're specifically talking about on Lifehacker, I think, mostly talks about finding you know free games and discounted games on on digital distribution. Mm-hmm. So I think it's mostly looking at like um, you know computer game stores, Steam, um, Xbox Live, PlayStation Network, that sort of thing. But there has to be some sorts, of, some sort of applet for hunting for deals on on physical media. So I'm definitely going to look into that. I I did I have used if this then that applets quite a bit for just my smart home automation. Uh, I've been in over the last probably three years or so. I've really gotten into the whole smart home um, idea, and more of it is just because I'm a tech geek and I like playing with uh, new gadgets. And so I've been experimenting with smart lights and, um, LEDs, you know, behind TVs. And, um, I've got all of my game room set up so that it runs with a Logitech Harmony that instantly I can say, um, it, it all, it all ties in with, with, um, Alexa. So I can, Oh, and now Alexa's lighting up and about to yell at me. <laughs> <laughs> so I can say, uh, you know, hey, such and such, um, <laughs> turn on the PlayStation 4 or turn on the Nintendo, right? And it'll it'll turn on my stereo. It'll turn on my Frame Meister if necessary. It'll turn on the TV, set the input, set the lights behind the TV to a certain color. If I'm playing Nintendo, it's usually set to red. If I'm playing PlayStation, it's usually set to like a, a bluish purple. Um, which is, it's, it's cool because you you can, you can tell it to do a series of those things. Um, now I've sort of stopped using if this, then that for the home automation, because, uh, a lot of the, those things are now automated within Mm -hmm. either the, the Google or the Amazon, um, voice assistant, uh, ecosystem. So it just has become less necessary to cobble things together on my own with, if this, then that, but, uh, it is a very, um, very customizable and very robust, uh, platform. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, if, if we get to the end of a topic, then let's move on to the next topic. Ooh. Um, <laughs> well well I know I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Uh, oh, I, before I, we leave free games. Yes. If if we are not done with the end of a topic, <laughs> we go back into said topic. Wait, wait, that that logic doesn't really work because if you're not done with it, how could you go back into it? Oh shit, we're in a logic loop here. Oh god, and, and oh god. My my processor's about to overload. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like one of those androids in Westworld and I'm just about to, you know, go crazy and shut down. Those things run off of if, if this then that logic. They you prob- actually, probably yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> So speaking of free games, uh, EA is currently giving away Dead Space for free on, uh, on their origin platform for, for PC. And if you haven't played Dead Space, it's definitely worth going and, and grabbing it. I think it doesn't say when the free sale is through, so it might just be, uh, it might be ending soon. It might just be through the end of the month, but it is definitely a short time only. Um, but if you're not familiar with Dead Space, it's a sort of survival horror type game that's set in space. 
uh, very spooky, very creepy. One of the better survival horror games out there in my uh, estimation, uh, especially the first one. The second one I wasn't a huge fan of, but um, go grab that because, you know, free is the exact right price to pay <laughs> EA for games. Absolutely. Yep. It's on right now. And it looks like this, the uh, normal price is 20 bucks. So that is not a an Im- that's not an insubstantial savings. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Definitely check it out. So just wanted to toss that little Easter egg or Valentine's Day egg out there. <laughs> All right. So if Caleb is not jumping the gun, uh, then move on to the next article. How's, how's that? Well one? done. Well oh, done. I know. I'm getting better at these transitions. So uh, our last article, our last news topic before the main event is Valve has pulled uh, a developer from Steam because this developer was reviewing its own games. So um, the the developer in question is Incel Games, a, a developer I'm, I'm not familiar with, uh, but they uh, essentially the higher up at this, the, the CEO specifically at this uh, company insisted that its own employees uh, buy copies of their games and leave reviews on Steam for their own games. It was a less than subtle directive. The actual transcript or the actual communication itself is in this article, um, and it's very straightforward. It's it's a, I felt like it came across as though if you did not buy this game and review this game, then you should probably consider uh, your employment here. Uh, very tenuous, um, to say lightly. That's that's the way it came across as, to to me anyway. Um, this uh, CEO, his name is uh, I want to find it because I really want to call out this guy, Patrick Streppel. Um, then posted a or re- responded to these at allegations essentially by saying that he was simply encouraging his team to support i'm not going to read it word for word but essentially it boils down to he was he was trying to encourage his team to support the games um and that he was not actually insisting that their jobs were in jeopardy or anything like that even though it seems very much that they were it's almost as though this guy in his response didn't realize that his word for word initial correspondence to his company was public because he his 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 defense or his responses is is very uh, thin, I think. So the reason I bring it up is because one, it's game news, and that's what we do here, uh, at least this portion of it. Um, but also, I thought it was uh, it it went to show me just how important the review uh, the review economy is to not just Steam, but really I think to the larger space, to Amazon, to Google, to all of this. The reviews are so critical to the algorithms and to the functioning uh, platform um, that. Steam would be willing to uh, to lose revenue, um, and Steam's Steam's cut on game sales is not insubstantial. It's it's quite a bit actually. Last I read, it was something around thirty percent or so. Often Steam will take of the games, uh, and that's a lot of freaking money. Maybe not for this particular publisher, uh, because who knows how many games they were actually selling. So I don't really know that Steam was tended uh, stood to lose too much money off of this. This is all speculation on my part, but. It just goes to show how important reviews are. Um, if a, if Steam is willing to take such strong action against fake reviews, it it's it's it tells me that there are their algorithms, their sales algorithms, a lot of the infrastructure is based upon reviews. And other companies have done similar things. Google with uh, their Google Maps reviews, um, very 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 strict um, on who on the types of reviews that are able to be left because uh, those do factor into the rankings for them as well. Um, another big one is Yelp. 
the uh, what used to be only restaurants only, but now, you know, is everything. Um, they actually have very specific guidelines on um, when they would show your review should you leave them. Um, you have to be sort of a constant reviewer and good standing and all this kind of stuff before they even, they, they sort of validate you as a person before they even allow your reviews to be exposed. So reviews are extremely, extremely important. Um, and I, so I, I kind of want to leave it there for now. There, there's a few other things I think to talk about regarding this guy, the CEO, and the way he sort of went about this situation, but just the idea that that he's trying to influence the review system very egregiously um, was interesting to me, and I'm glad Steam did what they did. I'm glad they they, they stepped down. Um, I would like to, even if it was a larger company than Incel Games, I would have loved to see Steam continue to to do this type of thing. Yeah, there's there's actually a, a big movement among e-commerce, and you, you sort of alluded to this, not just Steam, but e-commerce uh, giants in general understand how big of a role reviews play in uh, the purchasing decision. Um, and it, it goes back to even before e-commerce where referral is, was the, the number one best way to influence a purchasing decision. It's getting someone who is trusted by the potential purchaser to tell them uh, to, yes, that purchase is, is in your best interest and I, I approve of that purchase. Uh, it's, it's also why companies use celebrity spokespeople mm -hmm. because you get that identification subconsciously with who that who that um, spokesperson is and that almost acts as a a, a familial or, or friendship link in the subconscious that sort of uh, gives subconscious weight to the the information that that person is telling you and because of the propensity so fake reviews on e-commerce sites really exploded from probably 2008 or so on and companies really started to clamp down on it in you know starting in the early 2010s like 2013 2014 uh, I know we we discussed this back when I was in in uh, business school at length in some of our business strategy and marketing classes and uh, I don't know if this has shifted since then I'm sure it's probably been tempered a little bit but back then even it, it was uh, estimated that 20% of all reviews on Yelp were fake mm. um, and and 15 to 20% of all reviews just online in general across all e-commerce sites were were either fake or paid for. And so once that information starts getting out and all you have to do is go to amazon.com and look at a product especially if it's something that is you know like a chinese knockoff and look at the reviews and it's they're all verified purchases, but they're all, you know, written in English and they're mm -hmm. all sort of that same uh, cobbled together half a sentence that doesn't really make any sense. But if you read it, you know, really drunk, it might say, hey, <laughs> buy this product. And when when consumers see the propensity of that, it just it it breaks their confidence in the review structure in general, which then lowers the the impact of your actual reviews. And when those are really the the main driving force, aside from price, um, driving customers to continually make purchases on your platform, it it can spell some real long term trouble for for your ecosystem. So I can't say that I'm shocked that that Valve was willing to. Um, just write this uh, publisher off and say, nope, you're done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I, I, it's interesting that the the turn has 
been from the quality of the review to the quality of the reviewer. Uh, this has happened so, so much. Um, even if you, I'll go back to the Yelp example. Um, you know, you have to create a substantial number of reviews and t- before Yelp will even show any of your your single reviews. So it's almost, Yelp has to collect a bunch of data about you as a person to validate you as a person before they are willing to then create, uh, to, to display any of your reviews on the various restaurant or whatever uh profiles. Um, and I, w- I would imagine they probably, you know, you if you have the app installed on your phone, they can probably know that you are physically at this place. And therefore, if you were leave, leave a review for that place, they can make that correlation there. I do know that in Google, for example, um, too many reviews from a single IP address will flag their system. And they will, you know, that would indicate that these must be fake reviews. Why would you have all these reviews from the same spot, which has caused some frustration with some business owners, because some business owners like to, they used to have a tablet or something on their counter. And so if after exchange, after a a positive exchange, they may say, Hey, if you wouldn't mind taking a few minutes to leave us a review here at the store, that'd be fantastic. Um, Which is, you know, uh, honest enough, but again, that's just one of the uh, one of the unfortunate uh, uh, one of the unfortunate uh, stipulations, or one of the unfortunate things that has to happen when you are trying to make these reviews much more legitimate. Even Google, uh, when they or YouTube, when they forced you for a short period of time to use your real name, um, and as it was associated with your Google Plus account uh, in YouTube comments, you know, a lot of people went crazy about that. And I think the the public facing reason for that was that it was going to try to curb bullying and try to curb some some racist type remarks and things like that, any sort of aggression and that sort of thing, unnecessary aggression. Um, because if someone ha- knows that their true name is associated with a comment, they may be more willing to think about the type of comment that they're leaving. Um, but the also benefit to that was it would help validate, you know, the, the review itself. It would make it more or the, validate the comment itself. So uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of important stuff going on there, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's a good move. Good move on Steam's part. Yeah, it, go, going back to the the Yelp um, review and the changes that Yelp has made to their uh, structure and and how they approve of reviews. There's actually a an interesting Harvard Business School paper on this, written by uh, a professor from Harvard Business School, Michael Luca, and a professor from Boston University's Business School, uh, Georgios Zervas. It's called "Fake It Till You Make It: uh, Reputation, Competition, and Yelp Review Fraud," and it's an article from uh, mid 2015. And we'll link it in the show notes, uh, but it's available for free on the Harvard website uh, that talks about what led to Yelp changing their review schema and just sort of the, the overall prevalence of, of review fraud in, in the marketplace and, and what, uh, how it works, how, how it impacts uh, buyer purchasing decisions and, and so forth. Uh, an interesting read if you're a, a business nerd like me. <laughs> or if you're a regular nerd, why not? Yeah. Why not? All right. Is it time for the main event? The main event. It is. <laughs> it is. We need to get uh, Howard Finkel to come and do like, uh, <laughs> and coming down the aisle for the main event. Uh, so, Finkel. Finkel, man, the Fink. What a voice. What a voice. <laughs> what a shiny head. Yeah, that too, man. Oh. <laughs> I feel like he should just announce everything. But him and him and the let's get ready to rumble guy. Yeah, they yeah. should get in a in a in a in an introduce off. 
Oh man, uh, a cage. Who would announce the cage match between the Fink and uh, the the other guy? Is that guy's name? <laughs> it's just the other guy. That's the his other name. guy. Yeah. I don't know. It's a good question. Michael something. I think. Let's get ready. Let's see Google if I can spell <laughs> to rumble. Michael Buffer. I had mm. the Michael part right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice. And he actually has that trademark, the whole let's get ready to rumble thing. So only he can use that. Yeah. Or whole, only he can say it loudly and for a long extended period right. of time. So Right. Yep. So speaking of speaking loudly and <laughs> talking for extended periods of time, let's get on to our main event. And our main event this episode is how gamers really feel about gaming in 2018. But do they really? So (laughs) an interesting industry report is making its way around Twitter, um, talking about a, uh, a report by a company called QT, Q U T E E titled gaming today. And it's basically a report on gamer habits and perspectives and what the gaming industry and gamers in the gaming industry think of various aspects of uh, gaming today. It talks about things like microtransactions, gameplay, innovation, VR, value, um, game publishers, just a whole slew of, of topics. And... A lot of these are becoming, you know, a little sound or a little, a little Twitter verse clip bites, you know, uh, sound. I guess you can't be sound bites on Twitter. What are they? <laughs> silent bites. Silent bites. Mm-hmm, yes. Mm-hmm. Silent, silent bites. And so we thought, you know, let's take a look at the actual report that underlies all of these uh, bumper sticker s quips that are going around Twitter and re- revolving around the game industry and and just discuss them and and see what we think about uh, the information contained in this gaming today report by qt it all sounds very scientific and very representative of the gaming industry but is it really (laughs) yeah the way you're setting it up there i don't think there's going to be any secret as to what our stances will probably be on this this (laughs) report you saw right through my facade (laughs) i did (laughs) well let's get ready to rumble (laughs) Shall we? <laughs> we shall. The first one that I want to talk about is it is gameplay and the how much people play games. How how much do, would you say you spend in each each week playing video games? Me personally, uh, yep. I, I'm probably an anomaly um, uh, because I do have children, family, um, full time job. That part's not anomalous, but. Um, I would say probably 10 hours, probably. Okay. That, that's that's pretty fair, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I what probably a... spend, on average, it's probably 20-plus hours. Okay. I, I'm, I'm betting. So this Gaming Today report basically pegged that 45% of gamers play for 20-plus hours a week. So that's my camp and i'm kind of shocked that it's that high and 90 percent play for 10 hours or more a week mm-hmm. my guess though is that both of those are overstated 
um, just by nature of the sample of you know who's being talked to in in this population. Yes, and I think that uh, example is a is a perfect uh, is a perfect venue microcosm. For, <laughs> yes, uh, of what some of the limitations are of this of this particular report. So. First of all, having buckets of 20-plus hours or 10-plus hours is flawed because if you play for 20-plus hours, then you definitely play for 10-plus hours as mm-hmm. well. But that aside, um, it, it is it is looking at a very – it's looking at a, a – and you, you, I think, would probably know a little bit more about this than I would, so definitely keep me honest here. But the entire survey of sorts is looking specifically at a small selection of gamers, gamers who are who – are, interacting and communicating online and are of a higher uh, level of, of uh, serious gamer than possibly other gamers. So it's not a it's not a cross-sectional uh, representation of gaming community. It is a specific group of gamers that are being um, surveyed um, or are being, you know, their comments are being parsed. Um, I, I, I will say, though, before I start uh, hammering on this QT company um, much, what they're doing at, at large, so they aren't just a they aren't just associated with video games. They aren't just associated with any particular thing. It's it's essentially a company that um, has forums. It's it, think of it just as a general forum, almost like a Reddit. So think of it as a Reddit, but it's a Reddit with this overlaying veneer of data acquisition and data analysis that they're attributing to the comments and to the upvotes, so to speak. Um, and that idea, I love. I do love the idea that you can take technology. You can mine sentiment out of comments um, and create some valuable data around that sentiment. I think that's a super, super cool idea. I, I've, I've in my past life as an author dreamed of this of this sort of formula where you could almost predict the perfect kind of word um, that would that would be needed in order to elicit a certain type of emotion. So, like for example, you know, I know that in context Y, adding word X would elicit emotion Z, something like that. Like I, I, w- I would love to, for, for language to be that mathematical and for me to be able to understand the math behind it. And I feel like that's kind of what this company wants to do, but I, I don't think that they're quite there. Um, I think their heart's in the right place, but I don't think they're quite there. And I think as we go through some more of these gaming statistics, you'll kind of find out where I'm coming from. And, and Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I think you this the the how much time do you play each week question, it really is a a microcosm for the whole thing because you look at the at the the layout and the the poll was bucketed into five potential options, right? There was less than 10 hours, 10 to 15 hours, 15 to 20 hours, 20 to 25 hours and then more than 25 hours. And out of those five options, the the number one bucket was the more than 25 hours bucket mm-hmm. and it's 20 almost 30% of the respondents answered more than 25 hours only 7.9% of respondents answered less than 10 hours right so i mean your your population is already you're not a normal distribution you're already skewed to your high outlier when mm-hmm. when you're in that scenario um and because of the sort of echo chamber style um, p- 
public reporting that this is. It's not like a a scientific survey where it's a blind study and um, you are answering in a vacuum, right? How many how many of these people that are answering more than twenty five hours are answering it because they want to you know increase their epine, so to speak, right? <laughs> you know, it's oh yes, I'm a total, I'm a hardcore gamer. I play more than twenty five hours. Of course I do. Mm-hmm. This whole thing just strikes me as as very bizarre way to garner any sort of scientific data. It's mm-hmm. just is very, very much not. Um, but I think it's still fun to talk about, right? Yeah. And to be fair too, I don't know that anywhere in the report, it's claiming itself to be like definitive science. I will say though, that there's enough percentages and charts and pretty visuals in this report to give the implication that it's trying to be very, very scientific, mm-hmm. but I don't know that it overtly states anywhere that this is a scientific approach. Um, There's a lot of words here. The blocks of text are very dense. It looks like I'm reading a 1920s newspaper, so it could very well be in there, but I don't remember seeing it. I read a substantial amount of the report um, word for word, and I don't remember seeing anything, any overt statement there. No, I I don't think there's anything overt, but it's definitely formatted Mm -hmm. and designed to make you make that connotation yeah i think right i mean it's it's the front page looks like it would be a report released by someone like npd who's you know an actual industry analyst group yeah the the page two is an executive summary that highlights their methodology despite it being instantly obvious that their methodology methodology is utter bullsh bull hockey (laughs) um yeah and then there's this Message on page three by founder Tim Wilson, who's you know, dressed in his fancy suit and half unbuttoned shirt like a, you know, <laughs> Silicon Valley Adonis. Right? <laughs> I think it's very clear that they're trying to mislead the public with with what this is and not just the public, but it's very clear from some of the news articles in in relatively mainstream and not just mainstream, but even gaming media that it's working because the before I actually click through to read the report itself, I read some some news coverage of it and all of them very much so were buying into the fact that this was a poll and that X percent of respondents said this. So that was indicative of the gaming industry in general or in of the, the, you know, the gaming landscape in general. Um, so I think the danger here is that while they're not overtly saying that they are, are doing a scientific study, that is very much how, whether the media is just interpreting it on their own or via uh, some sort of press release. Now that I've seen allude, I've seen stories about this report enough now in enough different news media outlets to make me think that it was pumped with a, a press release of some sort to get them onto it. Right. Um, it, which is, ends up being little more than just marketing for their QT platform. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. But I think some of the, some of the questions here are, we can glean some information from them despite the, the skewed uh, population. And it seems to me that the population that's taking that, that was represented here skews likely skews heavily toward PC gamers as opposed to console gamers. Uh, just by reading some of the the comments and and quotes in it, talking about um, if we one of the questions was um, who gets your vote for best major game publisher of 2017, 
And the number one answer, getting 29% of the vote, not Nintendo, not Sony, not EA, not Blizzard, not Square Enix, not Activision. It was Riot. <laughs> who I think Riot has only made one game ever, and that's League of Legends. So that wasn't even in 2017. So, I mean, to the fact that Riot outnumbers Nintendo, EA, Square, Activision, Sega, and Sony combined is a little ridiculous. Mm-hmm. <sighs> gross. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of gross, one of the questions that I find the most disturbing is... Basically, the question is, what do you feel about microtransactions? And I thought the the results were relatively stunning. And I think this is the one that's getting the most play, at least the most play that I've seen on social media. And perhaps it's just because I run in a very anti-microtransaction circle. But 69% of the respondents are fine with cosmetic microtransactions, 22% say they dislike pay-to-win microtransactions. So that means that 78% are either pro-pay-to-win or are just ambivalent and don't care one way or the other, Uh, which is sort of a... It's sort of astounding that only 22% say they dislike the pay-to-win model given the social media fervor that was whipped up around the Battlefront 2 microtransactions and it leading to people talking about legislation and uh, people boycotting the game. Well, I really think this is like the the internet echo chamber at work, right? It's a a vocal minority. Going back to a comment that you made earlier where, you know, you have a parent who's buying a video game for their kid. They know their kid likes Star Wars. They're going, they're buying Battlefront 2. They're not part of the echo chamber that's hearing, oh, the Battlefront 2 is laced with pay to play. It's laced with microtransactions. And I mean, that whole vocal minority theory really is supported by the fact that the Battlefront 2, while they missed sales, while they missed overall revenue projections because they had to shut off microtransactions due to the the online you know stuff, the game itself actually sold quite well. I mean, it, they moved 3.2 million units across uh, PlayStation 4 and, and Xbox One. Uh, and if you look at, put those together, and that's that's a top 20 game you know, for, for 2017. Um, so it, it did sell quite well. Um, and the one that is the, the answer that really, um, shocks me and makes me just sort of, this is what really made me wonder about the population and made me want to dig into the actual methodology and the report itself. And this was the first statistic that I saw this morning on Twitter was that just 6% of gamers abstain from microtransactions entirely and do not purchase them. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't believe it. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm very much against microtransactions. Um, at least any micro, microtransactions that I've thus far experienced in my life. You know, I'm a scientific mind. I'm open to the possibilities of being changed by new data. 
But right now, I, I'm I'm firmly against them, and I don't think that's just my my perception. I I think let's also take a step back too and realize that uh, microtransactions are also prevalent. If this truly is a PC leaning uh, leaning community, you know, um, or or sample set, is there a difference in the microtransaction volume from PC to console? And I would imagine there is. I don't know what that is, but I would imagine that's there. I think. The other, the other big thing, and it's interesting that this is the sort of the statistic that caused you to want to dig deeper into this report because it's the same for me, but for a different reason. I was struck by the fact that the category choices are not mutually exclusive. Um, I could, you know, one of the choices is cosmetic only is okay. Another choice is I'd rather pay up front. I could be both of those things. Why can't I? I, I I'd rather pay up front, but then also think cosmetic is is okay like that those are not mutually exclusive and the way that the data is presented it's presented in a uh, in a in a what's it called a uh, an area or a pie chart that has the hole in the middle i can't remember the name of that donut chart or donut whatever it's called um it's presented in a way that does make it, it the data is presented in a way that show that that implies mutual exclusivity that's how mm-hmm. that that's what that type of chart does and if this is a company that can get that sort of display so wrong it really makes me question a lot about the the entire methodology, and I know I'm I'm perhaps making a uh, doing an unfair bias there, but that was the conduit that allowed me to investigate further. And by investigating further, my gut reaction was affirmed, I believe, and that yeah, there's there's a lot of problems here. The holes aren't only in the donut chart. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I like what you did. Yeah, <laughs> I'm picking up what you're laying down. Yep, 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 yep. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. One thing that I did I did find interesting, shifting off of the microtransaction uh, soapbox for a moment, was now the it's clear that the the population of respondents is is gamers and and mostly PC gamers. But when they got to the they asked the questions about VR adoption, and we're talking about. Um, do you intend on purchasing a VR headset in the next 12 months? And overwhelmingly, the answer was no. 76% of them, of of the respondents answered no. Only 5% said yes. And nineteen, the other 19% said we're not sure. Now, VR is being pushed relatively heavily in, obviously, both the PC world and and playstation world um and i think initially this was another one where i just saw 76 percent of people are not you know it, it was it was spun as 76 percent of of gamers are not interested in vr well that also is not what this says mm-hmm. right? this is asking i are you planning on purchasing a vr headset in the next 12 months well i'm in the no camp I'm not planning on purchasing a VR headset in the next 12 months because I bought two of them in the last 12 months. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And and I have a, a, a complete set of PlayStation VR games. But here I'm a no. This is it seems like this is just missing. And I already have one. You tool category <laughs> answer. <laughs> and on top of that, 
The next 12 months doesn't necessarily mean anything, especially when you know technology is advancing and it's going to get great. I could be very interested in VR, but I know that right now the capabilities aren't where I want them to be. And I will maybe buy them in the next two years or the next three years because I know it's going to get somewhere great. But again, the implication of this data is that it's showing an interest in VR um, and, and that's not really what the data is asking about. 12 months is an art is an arbitrary time frame. Like why yep. 12 months, you know? Yeah. Especially when PlayStation, I mean, PlayStation VR just came out with an updated version. So they're presumably not going to iterate on that in the next 12 months. Um, you know, I mean, and that's just one of the platforms, but I, I think it just highlights the fact that the 12, what does 12 months mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, what what else can we tear apart on this thing? <laughs> How about innovation? Oh Let's my god! Let's tear about innovation. Let's do that one. Yes. So, from a bunch of people who basically were ju- were just they're telling us that they're they're not interested in VR, right? That that's what QT is trying to tell us that nobody's interested in VR. But then they had uh, the, another question was: Are games becoming less innovative? And this one I've seen pitched as gamers are believing that games are not being innovative well first i think the 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 question is phrased very misleadingly right it's phrased in the negative Mm -hmm. are games becoming less innovative and so this one it's interesting that this one is basically just a a three-way tie the answer the potential answers were yes no and unsure the fact that a third of the population can be unsure, like <laughs> it just makes me wonder who the hell these people are. Like have an opinion on something. My God. <laughs> well, I think it probably speaks to maybe, maybe by this point in the, in the survey, the people were like, this survey's dumb. I don't know anything. <laughs> like, I, I don't even know what the question is really trying to ask. So I'm just going to say, I don't know. Um, it's very true. Yeah. It's, it's a very misleading, uh, it's, it's, it's phrased in the negative. Um, also it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't set any context for what innovation actually means. Mm -hmm. Innovation means a lot of things and innovation isn't a great thing always, you know, you don't necessarily need to innovate. And I understand the question is specifically asking about innovation. So that's, that's the point of it, but it's also phrasing it in a way that says, if you're not innovating, it's bad. Um, and, and so having that sort of lacking that kind of context is a little bit strange. Um, This also, this question also highlighted for me another flaw with the overall report itself. And unfortunately colors my perception of QT as a company, even though at the beginning of this whole conversation, I stated how much I really love the idea of what they're trying to do. I love the idea of what they're trying to do, but this also just negatively colors the perception of the company in that, the quotes that they decided to choose from these survey takers are not helpful quotes. They don't add any context or color or any sort of additional information to the data like you would expect. So, for example, one of the quotes in this particular question about innovation um, is um, someone saying, you know, they essentially said that, that that they don't feel like games are innovation innovating. Um, and this person says, don't get me wrong, I love newer games and how they tell a story and sometimes bring in different concepts, but for the most part, it's just the same game as the last one. That means nothing. Like, yeah, is it the same game as the last one because you only play RTS games? Is it, like, there's nothing about this particular person other than they are a popular gamer um, that, because uh, I think they actually do have, they, they, they name the specific people that they actually kind of talked with and have these discussions about 
but it doesn't give any credence to the idea that this person knows anything about where games have been, where they're going, what constitutes innovation. They're not an expert. They're they mm-hmm. are they are a professional player. They are a professional engager, but that does not make them an expert in terms of innovation at all. In fact, I would I would argue that being a professional gamer almost makes you less receptive to understanding innovation because being a professional gamer necessitates that you play a very specific game all the time to get very, very, very mm-hmm. good at it. So of course you're not going to know much about innovation. So again, or in- gaming history to even have a framework for what innovation means. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, definitely a weird one there. Um, I've been playing video games for a very long time and I can say with, without hesitation that games are consistently innovating and they will continue to innovate. And it's not just the game, you know, if you're specifically looking for a core mechanic and you want that mechanic to blow your mind each iteration, then yeah, you may be disappointed. But I think people have to sort of realize the type of innovation that um, even loot boxes to, to some degree, loot boxes are a fairly recent thing, recent-ish. Um, that is an innovation. doesn't make it to mean it's a good innovation, but it is an innovation in gaming and, and it's working for a lot of people and a lot of people like it. So there's even the opinion of what is it, what is innovation versus i don't know i'm getting frustrated i'm sorry <laughs> going back to the the comments you know the the quotes that are in here a lot of them just they they really don't seem to understand what innovation is because innovation by its very nature is something that likely at the at the onset is not going to be a mass market appeal right innovation you always have sort of an early adopter phase with it with any sort of innovation whether it's new technology whether it's a new way of thinking whether it's a new uh you know socio-political model whatever it is it's never just boom overnight the mainstream that's innovation is is iteration right Mm -hmm. and one of the comments in here is quote in a series of games with a set formula what changes can be made take the call of duty series for example well right there call of duty is a series that by its very nature is designed specifically for mass market appeal right and it's designed specifically to be the most simple to appeal to the widest number of of audiences it is it is by its very nature designed not to be in it innovative <sighs> these, pe- these people make my head hurt <laughs> that's what they want to do that's their final question mm-hmm. do you feel like your head is going to explode well i'm not gonna unsure is what i'm gonna answer Hundred percent, yes. Hundred <laughs> percent. Going back to the issues, so there were the the paper touts itself right up front, saying they had over ten thousand poll votes, over eighteen hundred social media comments. Well, it, it's worded so that you think that they had ten thousand participants, right? Mm-hmm. It's ten thousand poll votes. Well, they had you know ten different polls, so they actually had. Uh, 1,663 participants, and the way they chose them, again, getting back to just a flawed methodology, is if you read through all of the giant walls of text in their uh, their paper, they get to a part where they talk about that the... Really, it wasn't even a poll. It was a discussion led by, quote unquote, leading gaming influencers, and they list a bunch of names that I've never heard of. Cap... Cap Gun Tom Mars Bar Philol Lionheart X Ten and maybe I'm just an old crotchety bastard because I don't watch <laughs> streams. But like 
But you are someone who plays a lot of video games, and that should count for something. You would you would hope that you would know some of these people. Some of them, like like I've heard of some streamers just by nature of listening to other podcasts and listening to other other people who do consume some streaming content, but uh, not a one of them have I heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems like that means to me that it's not a a cross section of gaming, the gaming ecosystem that they're going for. Right to me, that says I have pretty broad gaming interests and. While streaming isn't one of them, I cover a lot of genres and I cover a lot of gaming platforms. I pick on Xbox a lot, but I play Xbox games. I play PC games. I play PlayStation games. I play Nintendo games. I play console games. I play handheld games. Like if if none of these people exist in an ecosystem that I'm familiar with, then it's highly likely that their audience that they're going to be gathering for a poll session like this is also not going to represent an area of gaming that I would consider myself part of. Right. I'm going to say, uh, it, so I'm, I'm, I'm on a site right now. I'm just doing a simple, uh, survey size calculation here. And so part of me, when I look at that number 16, uh, 1660, Three, I think is what it was. Yeah, um, I'm on a different website now, so of course I can't see it, and I'm too lazy to go back. Uh, the that number to me says that's a that's a, an incredibly small sample set. That's an incredibly small uh, amount of people to really have any sort of valid information, unless of course the report was specifically about gamers who engage in gaming forums and are PC based. Like when you narrow the population down, then that small sample set kind of makes sense. Um, and just doing a quick, uh, there's tons of tools online. You can find any of them. Um, a sample set calculator. Basically, it's a way for you to know how many people you need to poll in order to have any sort of uh, confidence in your data. And I'm just doing a really quick calculation here. And it shows if if we were to imagine, if this survey only went out to Americans, let's say, and I don't know that it did. I, I didn't. I, it doesn't really say so uh, exactly. There's 155 million Americans who regularly play video games. So if we're starting with a 155 million Americans, um, how many people then do we actually need to survey in order to feel like our data is statistically sound? It's a lot more than 1,663. A lot more than that. Um, I'm still going through the calculation, but I don't need to do the calculation because I know it's way more than that. So essentially your margin of error is probably something around, I don't know, 70% or something. And again, I'm, (laughs) I'm throwing this, I'm just throwing this out. I haven't finished the calculator here, but it's not a statistically sound number. And they don't, they don't divulge that, you know, on a video I did recently on my channel, I did a, a survey of sorts to find out if there's any relationship between video game uh, between introverts and extroverts and what kind of games they like to play. It was just a dumb little nerdy survey that I like to do. But half of that video was taken up by me qualifying the thing by saying, this is not statistically sound. This is not scientific. This is just me being a nerd. And I like this kind of stuff. There's none of that in this particular thing. And I would say that our surveys are equally as valid. Uh, But I'm just comfortable in saying my survey is not valid. Yeah. Sorry. Got a little heated there. Sorry. I hope those. I hope these people at QT. I either hope they don't hear this podcast, or I hope they do hear this podcast. I'm not sure which. I hope they hear this podcast and just shut down. <laughs> no, no. Like I said, I got to go back. I got to go back and say, I think what they're trying to do is sounds awesome. 
I just am not sure how feasible it really is. So, yeah, and I'm just a crotchety old bastard, so I just <laughs> want him to shut down. Well, get I, off my porch. <laughs> uh, yeah, would you throw someone like Oaklish or Huzzy off of your porch if they were there in a heartbeat? Or Lionheart X10? I don't think you would. You don't think so? No, no. Mm. I I don't think you heard me. I said Lionheart X10. Yeah, the Lionheart X10. Yeah, you know, I would probably get Capgun Tom in my corner, <laughs> and he would like pop a cap in <laughs> Lionheart X10. Wow, you you yeah. are an old crotchety bastard. That's the yep. o- oldest thing I've ever heard you say. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Well, another successful episode in the books, folks. (laughs) On that note. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Sure. Oh, Oh, man. Why why don't you handle telling people where they can find us? Will do. You can find us. uh, Collectively, you can find us at mastersofunlocking.com, at facebook.com forward slash mastersofunlocking.com. On Twitter, at M-O-U Podcast. M-O-U, not surprisingly, stands for Masters of Unlocking. I just figured that out recently, so I thought you created a Twitter account that was my podcast, which also is a good name for a podcast. You can find Scott at VG Collectaholic on Twitter, Instagram.com forward slash VG Collectaholic. I highly recommend that you uh, do follow him on Instagram. The light system that uh, that he talked about earlier in the podcast, there are photos of that on his feet, and it's really impressive. Uh, very, very cool stuff. You can also find him facebook.com forward slash VG Collectaholic. You can find myself at uh, at Caleb J. Ross on Twitter, CalebJRoss.com. Um, oh, and also, I just noticed, uh, I don't know if I said this earlier, there's an, a Masters of Unlocking Instagram. Is that new, Scott? I don't remember there being one. It is relatively new, okay. yeah. We've had it since, like, uh, episode nine, I think. You son of a bitch. That's not new at all. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have to go so far as to call me out for not knowing. <laughs> God. So, uh, so I, you, you, you know, astute listeners will know which one of us runs the Instagram.com uh, slash Masters of Unlocking. I will say for those listeners, you're welcome because he he would do a much better job of it than I, than I would. So, uh, you can also, uh, subscribe to, uh, listen to us on, uh, whatever you're listening to us on now is one good place that you can find us, but also, um, iTunes, uh, you can find us on, uh, uh, just the direct RSS feeds on the website. All the subscription buttons are at the website, mastersofunlocking.com. And if you're listening this far into the podcast, then you obviously enjoy it. So please leave us a review, uh, go to iTunes, leave us a review, go to, uh, Stitcher. Are we on Stitcher? I don't know. We're gonna, yeah, we are on Stitcher. Go there yes, and leave a are. review, go to Google play music and leave a review. We've We've talked about how important reviews are in this podcast and that they must come from actual people. So if you're an actual people, leave us a review. We would really, really, really appreciate it. Um, and with that being said, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate you listening and leaving a review, of course. And we will uh, we will be here next time. We release episodes uh, once every couple weeks. Uh, on Monday is when those episodes come out. So please subscribe and share with a friend. Thank you so much yeah. for listening. Definitely. We will see you next time on episode 16 of the Masters of Unlocking podcast. (laughs) That's what I do. (laughs) 